0: For the past three months, we have focused almost exclusively on the Protestant side of the Reformation. We talked about Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin. And they're all very important to understanding how Reformed theology developed over time and codified into, by the late 16th century, essentially Lutheranism and Reformed Christianity, i.e. Calvinism. However, both Luther and Zwingli, at first, never had any intention of forming their own churches. Their goal was to reform the existing Catholic Church. So what was the Catholic side doing all this time? Well, at first, nothing. With hindsight, we probably find that strange. But the Roman Church had no way of knowing that Martin Luther was going to become THE Martin Luther. He could just as easily have become Jan Hus or John Wycliffe. In fact, if history was any guide, he should have become one of those failed reformers. So let's pump the brakes a tad before we rake the Church over the coals for not recognizing that the Reformation was about to happen. Once the Church did recognize the extent of the problem, it was quick to act. Today we're going to explore that Catholic response before we round out in the second half of the episode and take sort of a holistic overall look at the early Reformation, especially from a doctrinal standpoint. Before we begin, Let me just mention there's additional content on the website, westerncivpodcast.com. If you want ad-free versions of the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash westerncivpodcast. And check out the premium feed for an amazing reboot of the series. Right now, I'm working on the early Greek civilizations and the Mycenaeans. I didn't talk about the Mycenaeans at all the first time around. If you're interested, check it out in the show notes, glow.fm forward slash western civ. The early Reformation was very much the product of northern Europe. It was centered on areas like Germany, Switzerland, England, and the Netherlands. But the 1530s were also an active period south of the Alps. After Martin Luther's 95 Theses blew up, the established church in Rome had essentially a choice to make. It could embrace the idea of reform, or it could double down on oppression and hope to re-entrench in areas that the Reformation had not yet struck. It chose the latter. This decision was only reinforced when troops loyal to Emperor Charles V ran amok in 1527, sacking Rome, an event that I'm going to turn to in great detail in the upcoming episodes. Now, the Pope continued even after that debacle to ignore the need for reform and instead looked to France and Spain to help stem the tide. In essence, the fact that German troops were the ones who sacked Rome in 1527, turned the Pope and the Roman Church away from any hope of embracing Reformed ideologies. Still, there were important Catholic theologians during this period, and one is actually an exile from Spain who settled in the Spanish Netherlands. His name was Juan de Valdez. He formed a circle of learned friends, amongst whom were talented members of some of Italy's premier noble families. Valdez was an exile because he was a humanist, a philosophy which was still by and large condemned by the church. At first, his followers were referred to as Valdezinians, and then they later changed their name to, thankfully, Spirituali. Because of their belief that God sent the Holy Spirit as a force to convey grace. Valdez was an assiduous commentator on the Bible, and it's widely believed that he read Luther's writings with interest. He wrote very little about church sacraments, instead, focusing on the individual's relationship with God. His ideas would eventually. Give the Catholic Church some basis for reform. For the moment, however, until the death of Pope Clement VII, who really just got stuck holding the proverbial bag after succeeding Leo X, nothing was going to happen on that front. But die Clement did in 1534. He was succeeded by Pope Paul III. Who, while he was mostly interested in promoting his family's interests, was also bestowing Cardinal's hats on two key voices for reform Cardinal Reginald Pole, who would be very relevant in England and who we'll talk about more in a minute, and Cardinal Gasparo Canarini. Pope Paul's reforming instinct and his constant Renaissance worldliness was typical of most of the popes of this era. These men were interested in reform, that they were also very interested in promoting Renaissance art, and they did not see that as a contradiction. It's ironic, as I've mentioned before, how the Rome that we go and see today was built by the popes who also oversaw the collapse of what was once a united Christendom. Within Italy, during the reign of Paul, there were two impulses for reform. One from the aforementioned spirituali, and the other was a sort of noblesse oblige, reformism led by aristocratic Italian nobles. The Italian reform movement lacked the militant popular support and support apex of any power structure. Of course, you know, we have to remember, Italy is woefully fragmented at this point and doesn't have a king. And the absence of a king made any efforts of reform much slower compared to the North. In Italy, reform would always be piecemeal and slow. In other words, totally inadequate when set against the pace and charisma of the Northern Reformation. The Counter-Reformation's real issue, and I'm going to repeat this a few times because it's a major theme, is that it was just too slow to make a difference. The Counter-Reformation really does not get cooking until the mid-to-late 1540s, by which time Switzerland, Germany, and England, plus the low countries and parts of Scandinavia, are already solidly Protestant. If you look at a map of Europe today and the major religions, what you're going to see is that the Counter-Reformation utterly fails to win back any ground it holds what it had but it cannot turn the tide I really wonder what the same map would look like if the movement had started to gain steam in 1535 not 1545 often the Catholic response to the Protestants in this period was plan A, the Inquisition, and no plan B at all. And yes, of course, I'm going to get into the Inquisition at some point, but I want to do a whole episode devoted to it, so we're not going to go too far to the weeds on that today. Now, one of the biggest critiques of Martin Luther and all was geared towards the monastic movement. It's interesting, then, that one of the key Catholic responses came from one of the religious orders. A new one, in fact. The Jesuits. There were many new religious orders founded in the decades after 1570. Generally, they all had one thing in common. An emphasis on catechizing. Catechizing is... A large-scale teaching of basic Catholic doctrine, using repetition in question-and-answer form. Anybody who went to Sunday school or any sort of Catholic school knows what I'm talking about. Luther and Calvin both used catechism and catechizing as well. And now it was a major thrust of what would become the Jesuit movement. And this was tied to another movement many of us today recognize, but that actually never started until 1535. In 1535, in Milan, the local bishop wanted to ensure that young children were learning proper doctrine. So, he offered apples and other treats if they came for catechism each Sunday morning. Hence, Sunday school was born. In a few short decades, it would become Catholic policy that while the adults attended Mass, the children went to Sunday school. And I can certainly testify that as of the 1990s, the institution was still alive and well. It's fascinating to think that Maybe one of the things that most Catholics associate with modern Catholicism, Sunday school, doesn't come about until the Reformation. It's not medieval. It wasn't practiced by the early Christians, as far as we can tell. Didn't come about until a response. Now let's get back to the Jesuits for a moment. The founder of the Jesuits hailed from the far northern part of Castile, and his name was Inigo Lopez de Loyola. You probably know him as Ignatius Loyola. Well, funny story about that. Turns out one of the registrars took down his name incorrectly when he studied theology at the University of Paris. And that's the reason that his name gets passed down as Ignatius A Scrivener's Error. Isn't history fun? Inigo, I'm going to use his actual name, wanted to form a religious order that combined the best of both worlds he knew and loved. The piety of the Roman Church and the chivalry of 16th century Spain. Duty, honor, commitment. Those were the words he wanted associated with his new order. In 1548, Inigo wrote out his ideas in the Spiritual Exercises, which at the time he didn't intend as anything more than an instruction manual, but which became one of the most important works of Catholic doctrine since Thomas Aquinas. With it was born one of the most influential Catholic organizations of all time, the Society of Jesus or... As most people know them, the Jesuits. The Jesuits eliminated many of the defining features of most religious orders to date. No more decision-making gatherings and no more structure, daily worship cycle. They also refused to adopt a distinctive dress. Now, that being said, just because they're not going through all the hours of the day, that doesn't mean that the Jesuits lacked for direction or discipline. They absolutely did not. The Jesuit superior general made all major decisions for the order and distributed those orders out to the different superiors throughout Europe. In fact, Inigo had gone out of his way to make it clear that it was the superior general who shaped Jesuit policy, not the Pope. And the Jesuits grew explosively from only a handful of members in 1540 to over 3,000 across three continents in just 25 years. I mean, that kind of growth puts the Templars to shame. And unlike any previous monastic movement, the Jesuits never closed themselves off. Rather, Inigo wanted an organization that was absolutely part of a larger society. Now, interestingly enough, the Jesuits were not, at least initially, applauded by the Inquisition, which is terribly ironic given what we all know was going to happen later. In fact, the Inquisition was highly skeptical of Inigo Loyola and his practices and goals. Inigo gave them reason for concern. He was personally scornful of elaborate high-sung masses and, to a large extent, might have been more home in a Genevan church in terms of its look and feel. Now, in its first two decades, the order lacked the two features which today we think of as quintessentially Jesuit. Number one, aggressive confrontation with northern Protestants, and two, education. We'll get back to number one later on. In terms of education, well, the Jesuits just kind of fell into the business, which is interesting given just how linked the two are still today. The Jesuits did establish quote-unquote colleges early on, but these were intended mostly as boarding houses for students who were members of the society. Once the Jesuits did begin to focus on education in earnest, they focused almost exclusively on secondary education. In effect, what this did was made the Jesuit institutions elite at that secondary level. Because poor families could not get their children the necessary prerequisites to gain admission to one of these schools, Jesuit schools became the educational institutions of the merchant class, the lower nobility, and the gentry. This allowed the Jesuits to shape the minds of young men who would lead much of Europe for the next two centuries. Despite what you might think of the Jesuits today as hardline extremists in the 16th and 17th century, the rise in the 1540s did not mean that everyone within the Catholic Church was hell-bent on reform. Far from it. Many still hoped for some kind of compromise that would salvage the situation within the empire and bring some semblance of peace. In the empire, things were just really messy. And I mean that on a personal level. Take as an example the elector Joachim II of Bohemia. His brother-in-law was Lutheran, but his father-in-law was Catholic. And that's just in the nobility. In all certainty, that kind of situation repeated itself across the empire. There had to be some kind of a solution. Part of the problem, as we should know by this point, is that the Protestants themselves were far from unified. Bucer's efforts to get some sort of a consensus had badly failed. Lutherans despised sacramentarians, everyone hated the Anabaptists, and Calvin was just starting something new in Geneva. And that says nothing of England, which we haven't even addressed yet, but is its own delicious chaos cake of religious intoleration. Still, it's remarkable that as late as January 1541, Melanchthon and Johannes Eck were still trying to work out a deal, In March of that year, both sides came together for the Diet of Regensburg. But for all the optimism, the reality remained that no one went to these things out of any real desire to negotiate jack squat. When no one caved, the whole thing collapsed in less than two months. Meanwhile, back in Rome, Pope Paul III was busy setting up an Italian inquisition on the model of the Spanish one, which began its, I'll say, work to be nice in July of 1542. I think we can say by then that the opportunity for compromise was passed. Obviously, the biggest event in the Counter-Reformation was the Council of Trent, which began on December the 13th, 1545. Different popes had attempted to call a council prior to this, notably in 1541. But then relations with the emperor were poor, and it was not until 1545 that affairs between the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the pope were good enough that a council finally seemed feasible. So there were a series of meetings that generally get classified as the Council of Trent, but many of those take place over a series of years. And here today, we're only going to deal with kind of the bookends and the decisions that come out of those councils. I will reference them repeatedly in future episodes as we sort of shift back into political history In the coming weeks. In 1545, only around three dozen church officials appeared at the Council of Trent, though that number would increase over the years. At this point in Europe, around 600 bishops remained loyal to the Catholic Church. No Protestants attended the Council. Even humanist elements within the Catholic Church like the spirituali, stayed away. This council was never about reform. It was not about coming to terms with the disparate elements of the Reformation. It was about slamming the door, re-entrenching Catholic doctrine, and preparing to fight the Protestants with the sword and the flame. Most of the bishops who attended were Italian that does not mean that they were monolithic by any stretch of the imagination. Many had no interest at all in going along with what the Pope wanted to do. The first significant decree came on April the 8, 1564, and concerned the basic question of authority. This was the basis, really, for Martin Luther's initial confrontation with the Church back in 1518. There was no question of the Scripture-alone view of authority. The truth of divine revelation was declared to be presented to humanity through two channels, both of which were in the custody of the Church. In essence, what they were arguing was that, yes, the Scripture bears truth, but so does the years of interpretation that the Catholic Church, that the medieval Church— was entirely based on. These were the church doctors. These are the people like Thomas Aquinas, Saint Augustine, William of Ockham, so on and so forth. The Catholic position differs from the Protestant one in this basic sense. While the Protestants are going to say Scripture alone, the Catholics are going to say Scripture and all this precedent. Next on the chopping block was the doctrine of justification. Ultimately, the council decided to keep in place the late medieval policy of the justification of sin, basing it both on scripture and medieval theology, which had become quite muddled over the centuries. No one was happy with this, which is probably why it passed. The last major doctrinal issue was salvation, which was the biggest issue by far. Ultimately, the council rejected Luther's position that good works were meaningless. Instead, the Council of Trent reiterated the Catholic position that salvation was based on grace and good works. God's grace is available through good works, including participation in baptism and penance. By the time the decrees on salvation and justification were passed in January 1547, many of the humanist-minded cardinals had left, including the influential Cardinal Paul. In the summer of 1547, Pope Paul III moved the council from Trent to Bologna. Ostensibly, This was due to an outbreak of plague, but in reality, it was to avoid having to deal with the emperor, who favored more conciliation with the evangelical party. After he defeated the Protestants in battle, it seemed likely that he might be able to get the German evangelicals back in church, if Rome was willing to make a deal. Pope Paul was not and move the council to avoid the issue. Nothing more could happen while Paul lived, elderly and preoccupied as he was with making his family rich. His eventual death in November 1549 offered the real last chance that the Roman church might reform itself through an inspirational and reform-minded pope. Cardinal Pole, who was such a man, almost won the vote to succeed Paul. He actually gained nearly enough votes on the first two ballots to win. But then the conclave became a drawn out affair. In fact, it was actually one of the longest papal conclaves in history. Pole had no stomach for such a fight. And drew back. So instead, on February the 8th, 1550, the cardinals elected an Italian papal servant, Pope Julius III, and the chance for real reform faded forever. Really, the Council of Trent is much more important for what it did not do compared to what it did. If the council itself had been held earlier, there's a real chance we're not talking about a Protestant Reformation. But Luther penned the 95 Theses in 1517, and it took the papacy 30 years to respond. If the papacy called a council in the 1520s, which many people were calling for, even from within the papal curia, then maybe there could have been a compromise. But by the late 1540s, it was just too late. Luther, Zwingli, and now even John Calvin were beginning to build new churches, which is to say nothing of the Anabaptists. The opportunity for reconciliation had passed. The Council of Trent made zero effort to compromise, and no major Protestant leader attended it. In the end, all the Council did was reiterate existing policy. No one there considered reformed ideas, or even whether or not some reform was a good idea. It was a complete rejection of the Protestant movement. Look, the late medieval church was absolutely broken. It needed reform. But the men who were the cardinals in the 16th century were men who profited from the church and intended to keep that going. To an extent, Wycliffe's complaint from two centuries earlier was spot on. The Catholic Church had simply become too secular, too interested in lay power to function the way it was intended. And it was too difficult to get any of the men who benefited from it to change their position. The ultimate schism of the Western church was avoidable. We've seen that several times in these episodes. But the two sides were not willing to make the deals and concessions to make it happen. And at Trent... The Catholic side wasn't even willing to have the discussion. I'm going to close out the first part of this episode with a brief look at the latter part of the Council of Trent, which takes place from 1561 to 1563. I'm going to come back to this final council later, but I wanted to at least briefly mention it, because there are a few talking points that are relevant when we start to talk about Queen Elizabeth I. The last Council of Trent was summoned in 1561 by Pope Pius IV and didn't technically start until January of 1562. All the major parts of Catholic doctrine had already been reaffirmed by earlier councils. So this one really concerned the life and structure of the Church. Briefly, here's what the council addressed. Religious orders were to be centralized. Most relevant, the rising Jesuits. Seminaries were created in an attempt to shore up some educational deficiencies in the clergy. Clandestine marriages, those with a priest but no witnesses, were absolutely forbidden. Now, one might seem out of place here, but... Oddly, it was a huge issue and a major sticking point for a lot of people. I guess there were a ton of Romeo and Juliet marriages in the middle of the 16th century. The council cleaned up the doctrines of the cult of saints and purgatory. And in a definite case of shutting the barn door after the horse is loose, the council finally banned indulgences. The biggest question concerned church hierarchy and structure. By this point, having a bunch of nobles as cardinals and bishops who didn't care at all about their pastoral duties seemed like a really bad idea, especially set against highly educated, effective, and motivated Protestant churchmen. But to deal with this, the Catholic Church still had to resolve the issue of hierarchy. To what extent did the various bishoprics have to obey the Pope in Rome? In other words, did the Pope create the bishops? Or did each bishop derive his power directly from Christ? Theologically, this comes down to whether Christ created the office of the bishop, or it emerged during the early centuries of the church. If Christ created the office, then the bishops were not beholden to the pope. This is the argument that Henry VIII will later use to dispense of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon without papal approval. So this issue was thorny and nearly ended the Council of Trent. Obviously, there was a lot at stake here. And so in the end, the council more or less decided to punt. It crafted some middle ground language that suggested exclusive divine authority either in the papacy or in the general episcopate. In the end, however, the pope was going to win, because the Pope was the one who got to interpret the decisions of the Council of Trent in later years. The later Council of Trent is important to history really because it didn't end in disaster. Ultimately, the bishops signed the council's documents, and Pius IV quickly ratified them. This is a big deal, because there is honestly a real chance that this latter Council of Trent could have resulted in further schism. At this point, it was clear that there was no turning back the clock to 1516. But if the Council ended with no consensus, then the unity of the Roman Catholic Church might have been irreparably shattered. The Council shaped the future of papal Catholicism for centuries to come. Most importantly, it ensured there would be a future. In the second part of today's show, what I would like to do is put this beginning part of the Reformation into a broad context. And I want to start by pointing out the obvious. I have spent roughly the last five months, more, six maybe, really just dealing with theology and doctrine. There's a reason for that. It's important to understand where everyone is coming from when we get to the major political events of the 16th century. Theology is crucial, but a lot of kings are going to take the idea of Reformation, see what they want in it, i.e. Henry VIII, and do their best to just run with it. But these first key theologians were genuinely concerned with the health of what they would all call the true church and that was why we've spent so much time on it. We started the year by talking a lot about the late medieval church and some of the problems that beset it. In just sort of a large overview I think we can divide the problems facing the church in the early 16th century into two big categories. You have theological issues, and then you've got major structural problems. In terms of the theological issues, I think what we have to remember is that what a lot of the Reformed Christians, the Evangelicals, they tend to be called in a lot of the sources later on Protestants, What they wanted to do was return to the early church. And for most of them, what they're talking about is roughly the period from the age of Christ, you know, the very, very beginning of the first century CE, all the way up to, it depends, but I'm going to say roughly the age of Constantine. So right around 300 CE, most of them, some of them push it a little bit beyond, but for most of them, that first 300 to 400 years CE becomes the early church that we're trying to get back to. So the theological issues facing the medieval church are things that the reformers believe have more or less been sort of tacked on or grafted on the church since that period. So their complaints are really about scripture versus tradition. At the base level, what the reformers wanted was a return to the early church based entirely on scripture. The medieval church, on the other hand, wanted a combination of scripture and then what I'm loosely calling tradition. What I mean by that are all the different doctrinal practices that evolved really from the age of Constantine, so the 4th century CE, all the way up to, by the time of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, things have more or less codified. There aren't a lot of changes that happen, say from the year 1300 to 1500, so most of the changes happened between 400 to 1250-ish CE. So the Catholic Church is interested in keeping all those things. A lot of their theological practices come from the evolution of Christianity during that period, and many of those practices don't have any basis in Scripture, i.e. purgatory. Right. So the first major issue is going to be the question over what we talked about several times when we talked about Martin Luther. And then also when I talked about late medieval Christianity, this treasury of merit concept, the idea being that Christ and the saints contribute sort of their excess goodness, this idea that Christ had so much merit for salvation purposes that he and his sacrifice can pay for all of humankind's sins in perpetuity. And the Reformed Christians, by and large, don't question that. What they question is who has access to that, because the Catholic Church over the medieval centuries, develop this doctrine that the Pope has sort of the keys to this merit, has the access to it, and can dole it out as he sees fit. This then ties into the doctrine of purgatory, which has no basis in Scripture also, and you get from there, plus treasury of merit to the indulgence system, because the indulgences Buy someone time out of purgatory. Now, to be clear, even the late medieval church, at its most corrupt, never argued that anybody could be bought out of hell. You, you, that's a permanent condition. Heaven and hell are permanent. Purgatory is the middle ground. It's a period of time. Again, no basis in scripture for any of this. An indulgence buys someone out of Purgatory. For a period of time. And at first, the indulgence idea is that you buy yourself out through good works. This is another theological controversy. Because the Catholic Church is going to remain insistent, and and does still today, that salvation is a combination of faith, your belief, and good works. Now that's an anathema to people like Martin Luther and especially John Calvin, John Calvin, who believes you are chosen, it doesn't even matter if you believe, Martin Luther would say, no, it's faith and faith alone. But without the good works, then there's no purpose to having the indulgence. Because if it's your faith alone that justifies whether or not you earn salvation, and if there's nothing you can do to change your position, i.e. John Calvin predestination, well, there's no purpose in selling indulgences. Indulgences themselves developed out of the crusading period, when individual knights could go on. You know, they would have called it a pilgrimage at the time. We call it a crusade in an anachronistic sort of looking back period. But these indulgences, eventually through the crusading period, develop into okay. Well, you can go on crusade. Or you can pay for someone to go on a crusade for you, and that'll count the same. And that's going to buy you time out of purgatory. That's going to be your good work that's going to get you out, so on and so forth, right? So, I mean, Henry II, famously, after the death of Thomas Beckett, has to pay thousands of pounds in an indulgence to justify that crime even though you know whether or not he had everything to do with it but that's that's another matter we won't go down that road so the idea of the treasury of merit indulgences and good works sort of get tied together now none of those things have any basis in scripture those are all based on medieval ideas and so one of the theological issues for the reformers is to strip all of those things away. Then there's a couple of other ones. Yeah. Clerical marriage is a huge target for Reformed Christians in the early 16th century. Of course, there's no reference at all to priestly celibacy in the Bible, or to the contrary. None. So there's no basis in Scripture for clerical celibacy. The problem from the Catholic Church's standpoint as to why this develops that priests have to be celibate, that comes down through medieval tradition, and that has a lot more to do with feudalism than it does with theology. Because if priests got married, then they could pass their feudal territories down to their sons. The church, we have to remember, is the biggest corporation in Europe up to the 16th century. For over a thousand years, this corporate system has dominated Europe. And it's dominated Europe through the ownership of land. The Pope owns land. Bishoprics own land. Monasteries own land so on and so forth, individual diocese's own land. If priests can get married, then under the feudal system, those lands get passed on to their sons. But if priests can't get married, then the lands revert back to the church over and over again, and the pope, or whoever, it's, it's different depending on where you are, but let's just for the sake of simplicity say the pope can dole those territories back out, oftentimes selling them again for a new price. And as we all know from medieval history, life expectancy can be short at times. And so one individual pope might be able to dole out the same diocese three or four times in that pope's lifetime, depending upon what happens. The other issue is This question over the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist. And now here, this is where we just get into straight-up theology. I don't know how much the common European living at the time invested in this issue. For theologians, for men like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, Johannes Eck, John Calvin, this was the most important issue. It's the issue that keeps Protestants divided in the early Reformation. How much did your common shepherd in what's going to be Czechoslovakia care about that? I don't know. How much did a burger living in let's say Strasbourg care? I don't I don't know. We have some references in the sources to people being very invested in this. But then again, this isn't like a blog that someone wrote down. This is someone usually like a Martin Luther, like a Melanchthon telling us how much they care. So how much they actually cared, I don't know. But what it it boils down to this, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we talked about it a lot in the shows, but just in brief, the Catholic position remains what's called transubstantiation. Which means that during the miracle of the Mass, Christ's physical body becomes manifest in the bread and in the wine. Okay, and that's where all the sort of mystical properties of the Mass come in that the Reformed Christians are going to be so critical of. In terms of Reformed Christianity, we have really three key positions. And they almost break down on the three lines that we've talked about in the show up to this point. You know, we've got Martin Luther, who still believes in some bodily presence of Christ, though he doesn't believe in the miracle of the mass. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you have Ulrich Zwingli and the sacramentarians, although, again, they wouldn't have called themselves that. That was a term of derision that was cast upon them. Zwingli believed that this part of the Mass was purely symbolic. The Lord's Supper was a symbol to remind us all of the sacrifice that Christ made. Calvin's in the middle. Calvin doesn't believe it's a symbol. Calvin doesn't believe that Christ is physically present like Luther does. And remember, Luther never justifies his position by any logic. He just simply says, it's a question of faith. Calvin, on the other hand, in the middle says, Christ is present spiritually. And so we have those three different Protestant positions, and they f- they certainly fracture out from there, but I'm not going to go into that at this time at least. Those are the three key ones to keep in mind as we move forward. People are still going to be killing each other over this issue for a long time. Now, in addition to all of these Theological issues. As I hope you understand from the previous five months, there are major structural issues facing the church in the early 16th century. One of the biggest ones is jurisdiction, namely concurrent jurisdiction. And what I mean by that is the Pope, in theory is in charge of Christendom and the church. The problem with that is, especially when it comes to bishoprics and positions held by bishops within different kingdoms, is that the men who hold these positions are not just churchmen. In fact, in many cases, they're not churchmen at all. They hardly ever administer to their diocese. Instead, oftentimes what you see are important aristocrat, in England they would call them peers of the realm, holding these crucial bishoprics, serving in military capacities, and oftentimes as key advisors to kings, as these men are often highly educated and skilled in the arts of diplomacy. The problem then becomes, who gets to appoint them to their position? From the Pope's position, these look like men who are part of the church. And therefore, the Pope should get to appoint them to their different positions. From the king's perspective, these are civil servants. He gets to appoint them to their position. And in different kingdoms, this looks different. But the most crucial distinction is in the kingdom of France. In the kingdom of France, the king enjoys, especially by the time we get to the 16th century, what's referred to as the Gaelic liberties. The Gaelic liberties gives the French king more control over the Catholic Church in the kingdom of France than any other king in Europe enjoys at this point. He's the one who gets to make these appointments. The Pope will get a say and essentially rubber stamp his decision. And we're going to see in future and coming episodes how the Kingdom of France just gets horrifyingly racked by religious wars in the mid to late 16th century. Then, of course... In terms of structural issues, we have to face the reality that the shock of the Avignon papacy, followed by a schism, followed by several poor Renaissance popes, have left a lot of people in Europe seriously questioning the morality of the church. The church in the medieval period got its authority, got its gravitas from this notion that it was seeing to the souls of Europe. The idea was to look to the world beyond. In the centuries after the fall of the Western Empire, the new emperor of Western Europe was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was embodied by the Pope in Rome. The problem is over the centuries the pope becomes increasingly secular and powerful and rich. And that's no better displayed by the popes of Avignon and some of the Renaissance popes that we've talked about. When the pope sort of loses this moral authority, when he places an interdict on a kingdom and no one cares anymore, that's a huge structural problem for the corporation. What we would say in modern parlance is that the church has a huge PR problem going into the 16th century. And this is all just multiplied by the the existence of the papal states. Because the papal states is a physical territory that the pope literally runs like a king, like a prince. And as we have seen in the show, notably Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, they're far more interested in the maintenance and expansion of the papal states than they are in terms of shepherding the souls of Europe. So those are the major issues facing the church in the 16th century. Now what I want to do next is kind of walk through how the storm breaks In Europe, in a quick overview, we've talked about all of these events individually, but a lot of them are happening simultaneously. And so it's important to put them in context as we're going forward. Obviously, the most important is October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther posts his 95 theses in Wittenberg. In 1519, he participates in the Leipzig debate, and by 1521, Luther's at the Diet of Worms is famous, first exchange with the emperor, and is also excommunicated. Now while this is going on, in 1522, Zwingli begins his reformed church in Zurich. As he's doing this, Luther, who is currently holed up in a castle, begins translating the New Testament into German. With him out of the picture for a moment, the first disputation is held in Zurich in 1523 as Zwingli consolidates his power. In 1524, the Peasants' Revolt grips Germany and Luther famously sides with the princes. In 1525, Luther publicly breaks with Zwingli and other reformers for the first time. The Anabaptists step onto our stage and Luther gets married. In 1530, the first Kapil War takes place in Switzerland, and Zwingli publishes the complete Bible in German before Luther. In 1531, Zwingli exits stage left, as he's killed at the Battle of Kapel, and Bullinger takes over the Reformed Church. The following year we get a new character, 1532, Calvin. Publishes his first work, Seneca's, on clemency. Two years later, 1534, four years after Zwingli, Luther publishes his complete translation of the Bible. Two years after that, in 1536, Calvin publishes his first version of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. In 1538, Calvin and Farrell are banished from Geneva. Only three years later, in 1541, to triumphantly return. In 1545 in December, as I talked about in this episode, the Council of Trent begins and will be held on and off for about 20 years. On February the 18th, 1546, Martin Luther dies, leaving only John Calvin of the initial three principal reformers at this point. In 1553, Calvin has Michael Servetus, burned at the stake for heresy, earning himself the enmity of just about everyone in Europe. In 1555, pro-Calvin party sweeps the elections in Geneva, and Calvin reaches the height of his power. In 1559, Calvin publishes his final version of the Institutes, and then dies on May 27, 1561. Now, as we come out of this initial part of the Reformation, the Protestants have made significant changes to theology. Indulgences are gone, scripture is the only authority, scholasticism is out the window. No more Aristotle, sorry guys. Clerical marriage is allowed, there's some agreement on the nature of salvation. The mass, that concept that you can earn salvation through the saying of specific words, that's gone. No more prayers for the dead and the saints cannot intercede on our behalf. In terms of images, Zwingli and Calvin have sort of gone full iconoclast, no images. Luther proposed, and Lutherans still suggest that they don't hurt you as long as you don't worship them. And predestination has sort of emerged as the major Calvinist thrust going forward. And predestination and Calvinism are going to form the bedrock of Western ideology in a lot of ways as we move forward. I do think it's important that we remember that this is not about religious toleration the reformation is not some reawakening of oh gosh we should all just you know let people believe what they want to believe absolutely not protestants in most cases remain just as intolerant as the catholics had been zwingli himself dies in battle trying to extend his version of reformed christianity calvin was willing to burn Servetus at the stake because he didn't agree with him. Luther spurned all his enemies and was notoriously anti-Semitic. In other words, the Protestant Reformation was never about religious toleration. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about the significance of all of this. First of all, I think, in terms of the average European, the Reformation was far more immediately impactful than Columbus's voyages in the late 15th century. Columbus's voyages overall are going to be massively important, of course, but to somebody living in Germany or even in Italy, they didn't have an immediate impact on your life. The Reformation, on the other hand, immediately shatters Christendom forever. It ends the Catholic monopoly on religion in Western Europe. and is one of the final nails in the coffin of the domination of Southern Europe. What we're going to see is, of course, going back to the times of Rome and so on and so forth, the Mediterranean, Italy, so on and so forth, has been able to dominate the culture of Europe. The Reformation really ends that. I suppose the Reformation combined with the discovery of the Americas and that. The focus is no longer going to be on the Mediterranean. What we're going to see in our program is the emphasis now shift to the north. Of course, there's still the Ottomans down there kicking around in southeastern Europe, and I'm going to get back to them in the next couple of episodes. But by and large, the culture of Europe is going to shift away from Italy and up towards France, the German states, England, and Spain. Of course... We also, the Reformation also leads to the religious wars of the 16th and 17th century. It absolutely ends monasticism in Western Europe. It has major consequences for European philosophy and thought. The Reformation destroyed the idea of Christendom and the cohesiveness of Europe just at the moment that the world was expanding. It paves the way for the Enlightenment and scientific revolution. Religion also became much more personal and associated with the state. Morality courts develop in Geneva and spread out from there. On the Catholic side, the Inquisition goes way up in power and authority thanks to the Reformation. Church attendance becomes mandated by the state for the first time. I've mentioned that a couple of times, but it's important to drive home the idea that even though Europe was intensely religious during the age of faith in the Middle Ages, church attendance by and large wasn't made compulsory by the state until the Reformation. The Reformation leads everyone to question Whose side is everyone on? And whether or not they'll go to church service becomes a major litmus test for most people. As I mentioned also, Calvinism and covenant theory would play a major role in the evolution of philosophy in the coming centuries. All this to say is, yes, we've spent a long time on this show talking about theology, doctrine, and the changes that the Reformation brought. I think it's worth it, because I think it pays off in the end to understand these ideas, because the Reformation is that crucial to the development of Western Europe. There's a time in the musical Hamilton, and one of the characters says, can we get back to politics already? And I'm sure there are plenty of you who are saying, enough, been in church long enough. Can we get back to the major affairs? And yes. Next week, we are going back to the kingdom of England. Because, you know, while this has all been going on, three critical figures are dominating Western Europe. Charles V of Spain, Holy Roman Emperor. Francis I of France. And Henry VIII of England. But we haven't really talked about Henry VII. Last time I talked about him, he was basically Henry Tudor. The guy who just won Bosworth Field. Now it's time to step back and go through England's winter. The rain...